0: Today's guest is Lena Srivastava. She's the founder of the CIEL, which stands for the Creative Impact and Experience Lab, and the soon to be launched Center for Transformational Change. She's directed social impact strategy for award-winning documentaries and worked on strategic project design with organizations such as UNICEF, UNESCO, and the World Bank. Now I could go on and on and on with a list of, of so many other accolades, awards, and grants, but we'd be here forever. And I really want to spend that time actually talking to Lena and diving into her work because she's touched so many different types of organizations and organizational structures. So really happy to have you on the show with me.
1: It's such a pleasure to be with you, Phil. Thank you.
0: And you don't have to sound so polite. We go way back. Oh, man. So everybody who knows us will know that. So, (laughs) you know...
1: I know, it's it, been, I don't know, 12 years, 13 years. It's
0: been a while. It's been a long you know? time, yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like such a long time because we're both still so pretty.
1: We so, are. <laughs> un,
0: untouched by the ravages of time and all of the things going on in the world, we still, still, we persist.
1: Exactly. Um, There's a portrait somewhere that I've got that's aging for me.
0: <laughs> I got two. <laughs> <laughs> but you're one of my favorite people to talk to and both formally and informally because even when we're just kind of shooting the shit I learn so much and you have me interrogate just viewpoints and ideas so I know that the people listening to the show are going to have that same experience so they're going to get to experience in 45 minutes what I've had the pleasure of experiencing over the 12 or 13 years that we've that we've known each other so i want to start off with what you're working on right now. So in the intro, I touched on the center that you had created prior to, but now it's coming, it's taking on a new evolution. It's a new platform that is kind of launching. So let's start there and kind of talk about what you envision the center to be.
1: Yeah. So yeah, it's called the Center for Transformational Change, which is a very lofty name, but... It kind of has to be because I feel like we have so little time. Like I'm feeling just a real sense of urgency when I look at what's happening at the confluence of climate change and forced displacement and global uprising, authoritarianism, and all of that. It's all coming down on our heads right now. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I feel like because I've been thinking about it for a long time and been trying to bring those frames into my work, that I'm prepared for this like I'm at the right moment I find myself stepping into this but I am you know <laughs> I am cognizant that the name Center for Transformational Change sounds really big and I'm I'm excited about it I have to say I don't know what it's you know I I don't know exactly what's going to happen I'm launching a new company in the middle of a pandemic in the middle of uprising in the middle of a of a sort of environment where people are are scared and anxious and nervous and the funding community is, is also that and has been reacting in a way I think that is understandable, but also damaging. And I'm not sure where, like I'm, I'm starting a company, so I'm not reliant on like philanthropic funds or anything, but I am sort of looking at the field saying, where's my, where's my startup money coming from? So it's a really interesting time. And I just want to say like, you know, what I'm, what I'm leaving behind the, CL, the Creative Impact Experience Lab was not a center. It was more like innovation studio. Okay. And yeah, so I founded it in 2008. So I have a little bit of experience. I founded it right before like the massive, you know, financial crash of 2008.
0: So this is a trend of yours to, to start things in the moment of, of dire, dire consequences.
1: Absolutely. I'm also, I'm helping my sister launch a handmade jewelry company right now too. And we're just like, we're starting companies in the middle of a pandemic you know i think i think one of my best friends from law school i went to law school too one of my best friends from law school said you know i think you know, there's this trend like you you see creativity in crisis and i think that's i think that's probably true because i think what these kinds of moments and there have been many i think in our lives and i feel i feel really bad for people who are millennials and gen z because that's their entire experience we got the doldrums of the 90s at least but I think you know moments we've had a lot of moments of upheaval, and particularly in the modern sort of time of upheaval since Brexit and the Trump, you know, sort of like the election of Trump.
0: Yeah, The we've current regime
1: constant. Yeah, the con. Yeah. So like the, you know, there's Modi, there's you know Bolsonaro, there's Duterte, and then there's you know the twin horrors of Brexit and, and Trump, and you know you see this what's happening around the world. And I think it's sort of, for me, has been a little bit of a, a laser sharp focus on what I've been doing that works and what I've been doing that doesn't work and how I connect to the larger, sort of the larger collective movement for progress. And what I was running before was beautiful. So I started this in 2008. It was in the middle of a financial crash it grew really slowly, and you know what I was doing with CL was looking at how you use narrative, narrative strategy, how you use stories from communities themselves, and how you to use that in community-led design or community-led storytelling. How do you use stories that are coming from the communities that are told by communities themselves as a basis for advocacy for program design? For mobilization. And I did that almost as an innovation studio, as a production studio. We were doing, we, we did white papers and research. We produced websites and interactive assets and stuff. And it was great. It was great. And coming from, you know, grounded in a recognition and love of the political as well. Like it's not, we, we were never part of this sort of apolitical social innovation frame. Like, it didn't, that never sat well with me, but we were using social innovation, you know, methodology and it worked. you know, it was sort of like this 2008 to 2020 kind of thing. That's a very particular moment in time. And it worked for that. But two years ago, I started working with a business consultant and thinking, all right, what's the next step? The company's 10 years old. What do I do with this? Do I grow it? Do I, cause it was a collective. It was like, it was me as this primary, the sole member of the company. And then I would work with a collective of people, the same people over and over again, had their own companies or their own things, it was just a beautiful set of people. And I was like, okay, do I need to formalize more? Do I need to grow this? Do I need to like take on more projects, bigger projects? And it just didn't make any sense. Like it just running, an innovation studio from New York City, even though our work was completely international, just didn't make any sense anymore. And so I started thinking about wrapping it up and thinking through the next step. Mm-hmm. Which sort of two years later, based on a framework that I developed with the Rockefeller Foundation, is now turning into the Center for Transformational Change. That's how I got here.
0: <laughs> and as you're kind of walking through that journey, like a, a couple of things, more than a couple of things kind of jumped out at me. One is identifying opportunity, even in these moments of crisis. This idea of, you know, you've been in the trenches, which to me says that, you know, there's an evolution and there's a growth in your thinking that's now led you to saying, like, the center is the next thing that is positioned for this moment. Just take me through a little bit of, that thought process because it is a very human process. Like you said, there's trepidation in, in this environment, both that I'm sure is both personal mm-hmm. and also exists within communities that you're going to be working with and also partnering with, yeah. right? So there's, there's a lot cooked into identifying this opportunity, particularly in moments like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny when you use the word opportunity, I'm like, I think of urgency. You know, I mean I think it's an opportunity. So I don't think I've identified an opportunity. I think I feel, yeah, this is a natural evolution of what I've already been doing. I think it is a but it's more of a community driven evolution because I've always tried to work in a way that places I mean the word community is is, we'll we'll talk about the word community in a second. But that, that places the, the, the expressed needs, desires, wants, opinions, whatever, about the global policies that affect that community, what, what they're saying about it. I've always tried to center that in my work as a mission, as an ethos, as a value, but also as a methodology. And that's not always easy. Like, you, you know, when you were saying that there, I've worked with large organizations like the World Bank that I don't always, you know, I don't always agree with them politically, but, but, you know, I worked with the leadership team there that was really looking for innovation, looking for new ways of being much more sort of community focused. And I've worked with like, you know, sort of, you know, collectives of lefty filmmakers and artists I've worked with, you know, I've worked with, I've worked across the board, right. To a certain extent. And what I've always tried to bring to every single engagement at least is, you know, this notion of what I'm now calling kind of like radical listening or radical community, because I think that's what's going to get us. I thought that before, like when we were in this sort of pre-2016 period, that centering community and centering narrative is a driver of progress. It's a driver of change in a way that top down only doesn't work, that data only doesn't work, that technology only doesn't work. Like, you need, the, you need the human, you need the expression of the human, right? In this. And I think this particular moment, and if you're talking about this particular moment, not just 2016 and, and to now, I'm talking about right now, right? Yeah. June 2020, which is this confluence of this, of a pandemic, of global uprisings for Black lives, like finally this massive election that's coming, that's hurtling towards us, at least in the United States, which will have ripple effects around the world. Um, Absolutely. Right. And still, and still people on the move, like, you know, forced displacement keeps like falling out of the news cycle, but it's still happening. And then inequality and gender issues and, you know, civic participation, like all of these things, like there's a confluence that is happening. is like a laser focus right now that I think requires a lens of, community consensus collective storytelling and that's what i'm trying to embed i think in the next thing that i do i think i was experimenting with it in the last company i think i was playing with it and trying to figure out where it goes and how it's applied and i think i've learned those lessons whether i've learned those lessons enough to focus them into an actual entity that does that as its like mission that's what i'm i'm trying to figure out But that's, I think, so it's less an opportunity that I'm trying to build and more a response to the urgency and to the lessons that I've learned that are going to go into this thing. And yes, I think the crisis is making me want to do this faster and it is opening up an opportunity to step into that. Um, Yeah. I I
0: like you like taking that tack in the sense that Opportunity is, it was my word, and that's probably a function of how my mind thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important because I am a stickler for language, and I think you are also, that urgency is more meeting the moment than it is, like, kind of, a, like, in a way, I could see opportunity can sound opportunistic, right? <laughs> like, it's <laughs> like, oh, this is our chance, Right rather than to respond to the, to the moment and time. And so much of what you say, doubling down on the human elements, the connectivity of these issues, things coming from community, they sound so reasonable. They sound so steeped in common sense. And these are compliments to me. But yet I get the sense that there is resistance to some of these notions. And I'm, I'm curious as to someone who's been working on these things for so long, A, would you agree that there is resistance? And if there is, why do you think that's so persistent?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Yes, I do think there's resistance. I think there's also misunderstanding. So hmm. I, sometimes I don't know whether there's resistance because people don't understand what the word community means or what collective action means. Or what story means or what narrative means, I do think that story and narrative are incredibly misunderstood um, as as actual drivers of change. I think storytelling has been hijacked in a lot of ways into a marketing frame or into a you know like, oh, let's let's do the work and then let's tell the story of how we did the work. And that's important. That's a communications function, and I'm not denigrating that at all. Like I think story, to tell the story of something that's happened or to, to convey what needs to happen. I think that's absolutely crucial. So I'm not denigrating it at all. But what I'm talking about is how you actually, it's, it's how you listen, how you connect. What is that connective tissue among a group of people that ends up forming a community? And often that is based in the narrative, the narrative frame, which is the overarching, it's like, you no. Know, the driving narrative, and it's also like individual stories or groups of stories, that in itself is a data point. Like those, those are data, right? The sectors that I work in are human rights and rights-based development, overarching. And then I also kind of flirt with the innovation and technology folks and the civic engagement folks. Like Those are sort of on the side. And then there's the arts, right? The arts or artists or Narrative folks, like that's my nexus of of people. But my leading frames are human rights and rights-based development. And often, you know, what people are talking about is data. How do you count what's happening? How do you assess what's happening? How do you convey the impact? How do you assess the impact? How do you evaluate? These are all absolutely crucial things. What's often missing for me is what is actually happening. How do you interpret it? How do you listen to what people are saying about? any particular policy, program, technology, app, whatever it is, film. Like, how do you continue that dialogue? And how do you listen to what is actually happening on the ground in people's homes, in people's communities, or centers, or institutions, in order to respond better, in order to also, you know, respond better, but also to recognize that you might not be the one who needs to respond, right? There's also a power dynamic here. And how do you either step out of the way or partner better or provide the resources that are lacking there so that they can take the lead? I think story in that way becomes an absolutely essential piece of the puzzle. And I think it's misunderstood. So I think there's resistance there. And it feels, you know, oh, let's tell the story. It feels kind of woo-woo, like when you, like if it's just about telling the story of the program or the policy or whatever feels a little fluffy in that way, but it's so, I mean, to me, it's just like, it's this essential, essential characteristic of what we need to do. And I think there's also resistance because this work is hard. It's about relationship building. It's about picking up the phone or writing the email. It's about being in community together. It's about gathering together. It's about listening and talking. And, and it's, it's not about writing the code. It's not about designing the app often. That's sort of the end point. And it's again, I'm not I'm not denigrating technology. It's just that's the enhancer, right? That's the enabler to what I think we need to do this to really connect and listen and design from that point. And I think there's resistance because it's hard work and it's not often like I think it's sexy work. I think it's joyful work. I think, you know, sort of being there and having those hard conversations is beautiful and it's sexy and it's, you know, it's gritty. It's all of those things, but it's not always perceived as that because it's very, very hard work and it forces you to check your own assumptions. Yeah.
0: That piece, because this came up and it was in my notes as well when you were talking about storytelling and it, it came up again in your answer. Like you started to talk about power, yeah. right? And I feel like sometimes we don't interrogate power enough in the sense that you know power is is resources, right? It it's it's often who chooses, who gets what, to what degree, it's it's allocation of of a lot of the things that we need to make this work, right? And I'm curious about the power dynamics that exist in making those kind of choices, elevating what stories to tell. I mean a more technocratic, data-driven story is kind of a choice, right? It's not, there are other narratives out there that don't get as much attention, right? It becomes about, like you said, the app, the end goal. And, and maybe that is easier, but is there something else going on as we think about power, particularly as it relates to the type of, of human-based work that you do?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, power... There are many forms of power, right? So one kind of power is the power to gain resources or to allocate resources, right? And that is absolutely essential. And I think that when I am sort of with my with my left wing sisters and brothers, you know, sometimes it's kind of like, you know, we don't want to talk about resources because it feels dirty, but we do need to grease our wheels, right? So whether however you think about resources, you need, and resources aren't just money. There are many different forms of resources, but to go back to your question about the word opportunity, yeah, it can be opportunistic, but it's also, it's just, it's a thing and resources are a thing. And so there is power. There is power that rests in resource allocation. And it's absolutely crucial to know who gets to decide budgets, whether city budgets, country budgets, nationwide budgets, institutional budgets, those tell a story. They're actually, they're a narrative and they, they tell you what is a priority for a particular country, state, city, district, whatever, or institution. And they're absolutely crucial. So we need to know about that. We need to know where that power resides. But there are other forms of power, too. Like, there's bureaucratic power. Like, who gets to make the decision? There's political power. Who gets to set policy? Who is talking about things? And then there's narrative power, right? There's, na- there's charismatic power, too. Like, we don't have to get into that. But there's, like there's narrative power like who gets heard who gets to tell the story who gets to frame the story who gets to frame the trend and i think that's something that we also need to look at cuz sometimes people come to the quote unquote decision making table whether it's in the aid and development complex or the human rights complex or the sort of electoral politics you know who gets to come to the table and who gets heard sometimes I, you know i used to frame my work with c l as sometimes being a conduit or a proxy for people who aren't getting invited to that table. Cause I, you know, I get invited to decision-making tables or to like, you know, brain trusts or, you know, where, where people's intellectual capital is being mined. And, you know, sometimes be like, wait, you haven't thought about X. You haven't thought about that population you haven't thought. And sometimes it's like you, you become a conduit or a proxy and you have to understand that that too Is an expression of power. Mm -hmm. Like I I'm in a position where I get to be heard when I know for a fact that the person that I'm talking about is not being heard. Mm -hmm. So I'm fulfilling a responsibility to the populations that I'm partnering with, right, or that I'm serving. But sometimes that too is a position of power. So there are many different kinds of power that I think we need to always keep in mind. And you know, as, as a as a woman, as a woman of color as a South Asian woman, you know, I have to interrogate different levels of power all the time. Like that's just the natural state of being Mm -hmm. when you work in, in the sort of the umbrella. Absolutely. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Anyway, you have to interrogate it anyway, you know, and I'm always kind of trying to check my privilege, but I'm also trying to think about, okay, where do I fit along the spectrum of power in any given situation? You know, obviously I'm not always doing it in real time because you can't like you drive yourself crazy, but it's really important to think about power and, and to embrace power. Like power is positive, right? And if you can share, I think what's, what's really beautiful about power is that you can share it. Power and voice can be shared, right? Mm-hmm. But I've never liked the word empower. Like, you know, you and I have talked about this. Like I hate the, I hate the phrase voice for the voiceless. I'm like yeah. what is voiceless, right? There's not being listened to. But I think, you know, I I don't think you can empower anyone, but I think you can like either step off the stage or, you know, bring somebody along with you or hold that door open. Like as I get older, I'm just like, okay, I've reached a certain, like I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of my career and I can, Mm -hmm. I I need to hold the door open for people. And I need to like figure out who my mentors are as I get older, like who are the older ones or the ones further along in their, in their path that can hold the door open for me. I think the, the idea of power scares people i think it scares people and i think it's really interesting because to me it's just it's a generative force you mm-hmm. need power to, you know you need power to like have things move you need them to mobilize especially when it's shared and it's collective and it's recognized as being part of the puzzle i think it can be really beautiful
0: as you were explaining some of your relationships and i was reminded of a piece i just wrote where I mentioned leadership, like one of the things you people need to do, particularly in this moment. And, and I was kind of thinking more in, in Black Lives Matter and some of the corporate response. It, so that was more present in my mind as I was writing this, that, you know, some people got to step aside, right? Like your contribution to leadership might be getting off the stage, the quote unquote stage, yeah. and making room for somebody else, right? We're yeah. Yeah. pulling those people up or along or you know whatever the metaphor is that makes folks feel more comfortable, not on some Booker T lifting the hood. <laughs> you know maybe there's another a metaphor to find out there, but it's the same mentality. And I think that that leads me to the piece that you wrote because you you also are a a prolific writer. You had a piece in Ms. very recently, yeah. about this being the moment for women's leadership, and I think that's something that is consistent. Demand, but also it's needed, but it puts a lot of pressure on women. Not that they're not capable of handling the pressure, but there's an extra exhaustion, I think, that comes with that. Yeah. Or at least maybe I read that into it. So I'm curious for you to kind of expressly kind of talk about why this moment is so important or why women's leadership is needed in this moment, but also addressing maybe some of what I'm thinking about in terms of the exhaustion or burden of that as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, we, <laughs> we're tired. Every woman or any, you know, any person like who identifies as female. Cause I do want to sort of like acknowledge my people within the trans community who I've been talking to, who are like beyond exhausted at this point. But um, yeah, I think, you know, just as a shorthand, I'll, I'll say women, women, we are tired because we've been fighting for so long. I mean, you can say we've been, some populations been fighting for millennia, right? Um, <laughs> and you and you inherit you inherited. Yeah,
0: inherit, millennia is a long time. <laughs> it's a
1: long time to be like you know still fighting, like I can't believe I'm still protesting this shit. But yeah, I mean, and it's and it's it's inherited, right? And so that feeling of generational struggle, I think it's our moment, right? I do think it's the moment And when we talk about you know, women's leadership. Let me talk about two different concepts. One is that I'm starting to play with the word leadership a little bit, because I think that leadership as a concept, again, is is rather misunderstood. Like when I talk about, I, so the framework that I developed with the Rockefeller Foundation is called transformational change leadership. And when I talk to people about it, before I even get into what it is, they're like, oh, it's the kind of stuff that, you know, comes out of Harvard or, And no, uh, this is not what I'm talking about, right? I'm not talking about leadership as individual power. And I'm not talking about it in terms of bureaucratic power either. You know, what I'm talking about, and again, there is a place for that. Again, I'm not trying to denigrate anybody's work, but what I'm trying to do is trying to say there is a pathway that I think is going to lead to transformation in our systems, right? In our systems of politics and care for the environment and Blah blah blah, right? Inequa- like taking down inequality, all those things. I think we have to transform all our systems, and there is a certain level of collective decision making and mobilization that needs to happen. And the term for that, especially when I was working with Rockefeller, centers in the term leadership. But we were careful to define leadership as a collective action, right? It's about collective decision making. It's about you know care for community. It's about collaboration. It's all those different things. Like when we defined it. And, and that's why I think, you know, it's like the shorthand. is like, oh, women do that better. You know, there's that stereotype, but you know what we do? <laughs> like to a certain extent, we do do it better. And I know we have plenty of men who do it really beautifully. And I'm not trying to say that only women do it. I'm saying that women have been forced to do it better because of the way we've been socialized and what, we, what is expected of us. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a better word than leadership. And I'm trying to figure out whether this moment will be the breakthrough for women and people from underrepresented genders to sort of, to rise to the global stage. And you see that a little bit in, you know, the narrative around Jacinda Ardern from New Zealand and Angela Merkel from Germany, like the way they responded to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And there's a facade kind of like, oh, well, women leaders do it better. Well, not all women leaders do it better and not all women politicians do it better. However, when you do look at the response coming from people who have been programmed to care about community, right now, in the moment, you see that expressed from women leaders. The piece that I wrote in Ms. was about the unleashing of this collective power that women have been building up for so long, right? And it's, again, not to say that we want, like, okay, I don't want men to to step aside. I want them to step back, right? I want them to step back to a certain extent or to like have more opportunities for women to lead. And what I want from people who are power holders is to say, I've been hogging the stage for a really long time. It's time for me to, you know, to step back, let someone else step forward. And not just that, but train my audience's gaze to that person like I have access to audience, I have access to platforms, I have access to voice, I have access to resources. We're going to share now. It's not like, you know, because I've been, you know, I've been talking, I'm often getting calls from people, you know, from white allies, my white friends who are like, okay, what am I supposed to do in this moment right now? Am I supposed to just shut up? I'm like, no, I don't want you to shut up. (laughs) I want you to talk less (laughs) to a certain extent. I want you to sort of, give your platforms to, particularly to black women, right. Which I'm I'm trying to do a little bit as as well, but you know, I want you to take what you've got and train it, you know, sort of focus it onto the issues and focus it onto new voices. And that doesn't mean that I want you to be quiet. That means I want you to use your voice in a a little bit of a different way, you know? And I think that, (laughs) A couple of years ago, I was doing a workshop around transformational change leadership with a bunch of kids. It's the first time I've ever done a workshop with children. These were mm-hmm. kids who are high school students. It was in in the Republic of Georgia, and there were ninety high school kids. I was there doing workshops with like media makers who are adults, and this opportunity came up. Like, could you please do adapt your workshop for these kids? And I was like terrified because like they're fourteen to eighteen years old. Like some of them are like.
0: That's a terrifying age.
1: (laughs) They're like hormonal and stuff, but oh my God, these kids were amazing. Like the educational system, like they all spoke multiple languages and like, you know, they were being taught English as well. And so I could communicate with them without a translator and they were like so thoughtful. They were wonderful, but they're, you know, 14 to 18. So that every once in a while they would get like rowdy. And so quiet them down. I'm like, remember, leadership is about listening first. And I was like, oh, 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 I got to use that somewhere else, too. And they would quiet down. Like, they're like, oh, yes, sorry. We are we are future leaders. You know, what was beautiful about that, though, is like at the end of the two day workshop, these group of the young women, right, who were like 16, 17 came up to me. They're like, listen, we never thought we could be leaders. Like, we thought that was the president. Like, this is something that's new. And oh, my God, it was such a beautiful thing. It was just it was really beautiful. So in that, in that way, I really loved the the word leader, but leadership is really about, for me, it's about collective decision making and collective mobilization. And it is about knowing to pick your moment about when you shut up, when you listen, when you step back, when you follow, because leading isn't just about being at the front or being the figurehead. It's about moving through the system and knowing when you're supposed to step forward and when you're supposed to step back. And to me, that's sort of true leadership. And I think women, I think it's our time to step to the front, to a certain extent. And again, not every single woman is capable of this. Not every woman has the right kind of, you know, I don't necessarily want Ivanka Trump stepping to the front. I'll be perfectly honest. This no. isn't, I'm not no. agnostic about that at all.
0: I could list uh, a whole bunch of others as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. She's To me right now, she's like the one that I keep thinking about, but you know, it's like, because she talks often about women's opportunity, like, yeah, and a number that's, of my are, oh, she's great because I know, I know, I know, but she, I'm like, no. She's terrible. She's terrible. She's terrible. Nikki Haley's terrible. A lot of these people who are willing to sacrifice other people in order for, you know, to, for themselves to get ahead or for the generic woman to get ahead. I'm sorry. That's, that's, that's.
0: Foot soldiers into patriarchy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, or, yeah exactly. You know, that, that's, that's not the kind of, so I, it's almost like I want the feminist conception of leadership to take hold. And that's why it was really beautiful to publish that in Ms. Magazine. But to a certain extent, it's not just our moment. I think it's our responsibility to step up. And again, any woman, any person right now who is exhausted, who needs to take a step back, who needs to shut down, that's what they need to do. That's, you know, because community care is really, really important and we need to care for anybody right now who is not capable or doesn't want to, you know, it doesn't want to because they feel like it's not.
0: That's hard to do. I think the urgency that you described at the beginning, people in these communities that feel that urgency, you know, that's why burnout is so high, right? That's why health issues become so serious because it's life and death oftentimes, you know, like you don't really feel like you can stop, right? You don't really feel like you can take a break. I mean, America's already hyper-contextualized toward work anyway. Right. And those doing the kind of transformational work, community-based work that you're describing, not only are living within a construct that values work, period, but they actually care about their work. Right, like it matters deeply. So it's it's hard to get folks to take a step back. Like, how do you manage that?
1: Well, or or
0: do you? We chat all the time, so I don't know if you do. So maybe this is now turning into um therapy.
1: (laughs) Do (laughs) I? That's a that's a good question. I mean, I don't, I don't actually. It's funny because I don't actually think of myself in that frame. I, I get tired, you know. But when I get tired, I do take a step back. But I have, you know, I mean, like I said earlier, I have privilege. I'm a privileged person in a lot of ways because I can call up people and say, I need to talk or I can, and I allow myself to do that. I can, you know, I can resort to a book of poetry or like at this point, self-led yoga because you can't go out anywhere. I'm going through a period, a really existential period of like ennui and sadness right now because of the state of the world. It's just, it's there. Like I just, I think I just keep thinking of, like, Colette or, you know, some of the writers of the Weimar period or, you know, the French existentialists. Like, that's what I'm, like, sort of being pulled towards right now because I feel that. Like, this 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 moment reflects back to those writers from the, the 20s and the 30s, and, and I'm just, like, sort of experiencing this, this ennui. I mean, like, that's kind of what I'm experiencing. And it's really interesting because I'm also, on the other side, experiencing this, like, this drive to mobilize and this drive to change. So there's two, like there's two poles of it. And, and that's not necessarily creating burnout for me right now. It is creating the need to slow down. Even as I'm, cause you and I have talked about this. Like we talked about this three months ago when the pandemic sort of, you know, sort of led us to the lockdown in New York where I was just like, I feel like I need to launch the center now. And then like a week went by, I'm like, you know, slow down, Lena. slow down. Like this is, you need to launch it, but you need to launch it. And it doesn't have to be perfect. I'm not, I'm not, what I launch in September, I'm I'm right now planning to launch in September. What I launch is not going to be perfect by any means. It's not going to be finished. It will evolve over time and I'm okay with that. But it's like, it's okay to slow down. But I think that that's for me. And so I, I managed to, you know, sort of, I give in to the feelings as well. But I also know that I'm, I'm, I live in New York City, you know, I'm an educated woman, I have a community of care, I have like the ability to access art forms and this and that, you know, like I have freedom. And so like, I'm not trying to brush off my burnout, because I think there's a danger of that. I'm not saying that, oh, I am i shouldn't be worried about myself. I'm very cognizant of that. But I'm much more cognizant of it in terms of like people who don't have the opportunities that I do. Mm-hmm. and in this country, in the United States, you're absolutely right. There is a prizing for like, you know, that like I do have a work ethic. Like I was raised in the Northeast. I was raised in upstate New York. Like that Protestant work work ethic is like been you know drilled into me. And that sort of Indian parent, it's a beautiful thing. Like I'm not, again, it's, I'm not denigrating it, but it's like, you know, you do your work, you do it. And that's been drilled into me. And I, and I, and I know that that leads me in a lot of ways, but there's a, falseness to it when it comes to community work and community driven work, because the attendant, the sort of like the care, the resources, the support isn't there. Right. So I wrote that piece in Ms. But then I also wrote a piece called how funders can support digital response in the current moment. And that I self published on Medium. It was, it was published in Texalon, the Texalon blog, and then I cross posted it. And it's about how, what the philanthropic community, which has its own problems right now, I mean, we could do a whole other thing on-
0: Yeah, just that sector alone.
1: That sector alone and and how much like, how much that needs to shift in, in terms of power. And, you know, it just, it needs to not survive in its present form, it needs to really evolve. But part of the problem here is not, you know, there's on the one hand, people are feeling driven, they're feeling like responsible, that they have, like, if they are already in community and working for community, they have to work harder. Well, the resources aren't there to support them, whether that's in terms of allowing for self-care or allowing for a retreat, allowing for spiritual retreat, or, like, just paying people. Like, yeah,
0: the day-to-day survival stuff.
1: Yeah, like, putting food on the table, you know? And I remember, like, hearing, like, right at the top of the pandemic, there were, like, these foundations who bless their hearts, but like they were like, you know, issuing these calls for, here, like, get in your your application, and we'll give you up to like five hundred dollars, you know, like, but sh- but show us like your documentation on lost projects and this. And I'm like, for five hundred dollars, they're gonna do like yeah. twenty five hundred dollars of like work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot
0: of jumping through hoops, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah, and,
0: and I think actually in that piece, it might have been another one that I've read of yours, but you talked about these these twin concepts and if it's if it's not this piece then i apologize for that but i feel like it was mentioned in one of the other three or four pieces that i read where you you talked about this idea that there needs to be a, like a decolonization as well as a reimagining yeah and it it's I, I wanted to get that in there not not just because of the time but i do want to keep an eye on the time but also because it is it seems like it's very much connected to the care and the and the resources right like what are we imagining if everything is through this lens of scarcity something i talk about all the time it's sometimes difficult to look beyond that right and scarcity doesn't need to be our meals on a given day but it's just like these situations are so urgent right like we're playing in some ways i feel like we're playing a lot of defense yeah and the imagination is the offense, right? So how do you see that playing out? Like, I want to get that down because that was something I jotted down before we get to like the final two segments of the show. So, sure.
1: so yeah, so you did read that. I, I sort of touched on that in the piece on funders. I'm writing another piece right now called The Colonizing the Aid Sector Will Take More Than Listening. So I'm like writing that piece right now and uh, shopping it around. To sneak preview. It. Yeah, exactly. Sneak preview. So if, if someone takes it, it'll be in their outlet. If not, I'll just stick it up on my Medium page. Because it's really about sort of the, that notion of what is it going to take to decolonize? Because my work is about, my work is now about the reimagining, right? It's about reimagining, but implementing. So I'm also working on a piece called, I don't want revolution, I want transformation, which is like complete, like, you know, it's, it's in a completely unformed form right now. So I'm not going to talk about it a little bit, but, but the notion is that to we have to both decolonize and decolonization, you know, is the frame that is required for any, you know, country that was formerly colonized or region or low, the low resource community. That is suffering from post-colonial stress, from present imperialism, and extraction. Right, Western exceptionalism and extraction. So that's like decolonization. There's also anti-racism. That frame is now being joined to decolonization, which is great. I mean, finally, right? You know, it's been an American frame as well. You know, thinking about social justice, thinking about racial justice in the American context. What I'm trying to do is flatten that. Like, I just don't think we can talk about America and the rest of the world that doesn't work for me. It's never worked for me, but it really doesn't work for me now. Like when we're thinking about moving forward from the pandemic, we've got to flatten those like power hierarchies so that we can sort of liberate the aid and development and the human rights sectors and the the social justice sectors from like, you know, that the, the notion that America is the leading frame because I think it does damage to us as well. So again, We can do a whole other show someday about that, just about that idea. But the twin concepts of decolonization and reimagining, they each need each other. But reimagining is where I I feel like we need to go really fast. That's the urgency I'm feeling. Like I started out as a sort of, when I started CL in 2008, I had started from an advocacy frame and a consulting, like interrogating those things. I'm done with that part of my journey. I want to now build, like I want to build new systems. I don't care about counter narratives. I don't want to be chasing the right. I don't want to be chasing somebody else's narrative. You know, there's a lot of talk in the storytelling community or the social justice community about chasing the the narrative that the right wing poses and how can we respond. I don't want to respond. I want to build my own narratives. I want to build my own structures. And, you know, I said in that piece, like, I think it's really time for, for women, communities of color, whoever who's not in power right now, to own the means of production, storytelling, distribution, engagement. And again, that's not to accept anybody out. Like, I'm not trying to accept the West out. I'm trying to bring the West into a global frame. It's mm-hmm. a different, right? And I think before we reimagine we need to decolonize. But we're at the point right now where we, that's why we're all tired, is that we're at the point right now where we can't, re-imaginize, we can't reimagine until we decolonize. But they have to happen at the same time because we've been trying to decolonize for so long and that we now, I can see new movement on it. I think it's beautiful. And it has been stirred, it has been inspired by this late, latest round of protests that have been so crucial and so, and so international in a lot of ways that i think the time to decolonize is like long past but we need to do that work but my focus is now on the reimagination and the creation so i think reimagining our our systems is crucial transforming them into workable systems that work for the you know sort of like the good and the prosperity and the care of everyone That's where I'm headed. That's where I want to be. Like I want to be in that building the new system and building the new structures and building the new business models and building the new stories like that's That's where I want to be. I'm, I'm kind of done with the rest of it. I have my opinions on it. I've done the work at this point in my career. I feel like I can leave that to younger, faster folks. There you go. (laughs) Like,
0: like Chappelle said, you know, y'all are good drivers. I'm glad to sit in the in the back of the car and let you stare. So imagination is a, is a perfect way to kind of end that piece before we get to the final two segments of the show. Yeah. So off the dome is just a few rapid fire questions and you get a chance to just kind of give your first impression. And, you know, like this, one more time.
1: It's like a Rorschach
0: test. A little bit. It's, it's, it's a little cheat because I know some things. So it's like I could kind of lead us down a particular path. But, okay. you know, obviously we, we're both in New York. You kind of mentioned we're still in whatever stage this is of coming out of lockdown. And we'll kind of see where this all goes. But, you know, kind of thinking about a pre-COVID New York experience, what have you missed the most in our kind of quarantine three months or however long it's been.
1: <laughs> oh man, yeah, right now I'm missing summer concerts. Mm-hmm. I'm just missing being I'm just missing being in the parks, like listening to like summer stage or, yeah, I'm missing music in the parks. I think that's what I'm missing the most, but there's so much. I just wrote this list of what I'm missing. I'm missing, you know, I'm missing museums. I'm missing hanging out with friends uh, for a glass of like sparkling wine. You
0: know, yeah or and, glasses
1: and, yeah just in the plural <laughs> in the plural exactly i'm missing i'm missing so much about the city but i think just at this moment like i'm thinking it's like you know it's june we're taping this on june 25th and you know the philharmonic would have been out or i would have been like seeing some really beautiful like haitian or mexican music in central park or you know i would have something and that's what I'm missing right now about New York City.
0: Yeah, that's a lot. It's, it's going to be a long summer. I know. Um,
1: it really is. Oh, God.
0: The second question is, you have to pick who is the worst boyfriend of these two options, okay?
1: <laughs> okay.
0: The first one is Rolf from Sound of Music.
1: Oh, oh God. Okay.
0: Versus a single don draper so not when he's married and, and floating around but when he's legit single what's the worst who's the worst boyfriend of those two
1: <laughs> well hands down i mean i can handle don draper as single i you know it probably would have probably would've gone i probably would have been faye i think I mean, <laughs> that's probably the cruelest one or or rachel menken actually you know what i think i might have been rachel menken in that thing even though she, he was not single at the time but, it's
0: single uh, as Don ever is, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So I think probably I relate most to Rachel Mencken out of all of the, the women that he had. But yeah, he's, I mean, yeah, he's he's horrible. He's a horrible person, but he's not a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's just, you know, let's just get, get that down. <laughs> you know, he, he, I, you know he, it's easier to just you know, sort of dump someone and then go through therapy or whatever, you know, and, uh, you know, and he's a good looking man. So, Hey, <laughs> that's a perfect
0: way to put it. That summed it up. He's terrible, but he's not a Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. My last off the dome before we get to the drop is you have an opportunity to live in one of these fictional towns mm-hmm. and your first choice is Pawnee mm-hmm. or, Springfield from The Simpsons, Pawnee. Ah, you don't want to be a cartoon. You can be animated. You can do anything you want.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, Pawnee definitely. I just think that, you know, I have to say, Parks. I just, I just rewatched Parks and Rec, and it's so quirky, and it's just so. Yeah, I mean, I Good. think yeah, it's
0: great. It's amazing.
1: It's, it's just, it's just great. Like I have never lived in a small town, so who knows. But, I mean, I think The Simpsons ultimately did the right thing. I think that, you know, Hank Azaria did the right thing, rather, by not voicing Apu anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the Simpsons is cool. Apu was problematic. You know, shout out to Harry Kondibolu for, like, you know, interrogating that about South Asian voice and representation. But I am way more, like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Manhattanite straight up. But if I had to live in a small town, I would... I would want to live in Leslie Leslie Nope's world, I guess. There you
0: go. Go to JJ's Diner and, you know.
1: Waffles? I mean, yes. <laughs> have
0: Galentine's Day.
1: Oh, no, no, no. None of that. That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> <laughs> no. But the waffles? Yeah. The waffles, definitely.
0: Oh, Pawnee wins. All right. Perfect. And just had, had a few off the dome. Those were just quick. You know, <laughs> so now I want to get to the drop which is both of us can share something that we want to point our our listeners to. So I can go first, you can go first. You go first. Oh, okay. My my drop is actually, it's not one thing, it's more of a concept, even though I'm going to give some things for people to check out. Um, One is obviously, as we've kind of been in this, the throes of this uprising of Black Lives Matter, I've seen on so many, whether it's Facebook or LinkedIn on Twitter, people are giving resources to, you know, check out like Blackness and, you know, many of them are are very good. like All the typical sort of anti-racist books. And so I'm not like dismissing those things, but I was in a conversation about two weeks ago and just a general talk with some folks. And I recommended those things are good. Like read those things. If you haven't read those things, go for it. But and I'm gonna paraphrase Chuck Welch, who's a, a friend of mine and a listener of the show. So shout out to Chuck if he hears this episode. He had a, a statement he made on, face, on LinkedIn, which was that black pain is not a campaign and he's a marketer. So he, he kind of framed it in that idea. And you know, blackness is so much more than these kind of deep anti-racist things. So I've been inviting people to like, if you wanna get more into like the black experience, there's lots of ways to do that, obviously but check out some lighter fare, right? Like it doesn't have to be like the super heavy, the 13th or, you know, like shout out David DuVernay. That's a great thing to watch. But, you know, I was kind of pointing people like watch Boomerang, like watch Love Jones, like (laughs) watch Love and Basketball. Like there's other stories about Blackness that don't deal with this stuff that I think in ways are very relevant. So my drop is to just kind of check out some lighter stuff, yeah. you know? And Love Jones is my absolute favorite movie, so I would point in that direction. But definitely Love and Basketball and Boomerang, I think, are also good options. So just Boomerang.
1: dive
0: dive into some lighter Blackness.
1: <laughs> totally forgot about Boomerang. I remember that. That was, like, from 1990, what, two, three or something? Yeah, like, it's
0: in that era. Like, Boomerang made me want to get a corporate job and come back to the city when I was in college. Like, seeing Marcus Graham with the great apartment and the cool clothes. And I was, that was super inspiring, <laughs> you know, all black work environment.
1: Halle Berry, who, oh God, it's like burned into my mind. I forgot when she, when she tells Eddie Murphy, she's like, love should have brought you home last night. Yeah. I, I remember that line is burned into my brain. With
0: the oh. finger point. Yeah. yeah. It's an ill line. Yeah.
1: Such a great line. It's just like, she delivered it so beautifully. Yeah, I'm going to watch that again. <laughs> Good. Good job. Okay. Mine's a little more, a little more heady. So I want to give a little bit of a shout out to something that most people probably don't do. So I've been trying, I've always loved poetry. And so, but right now I'm trying to read at least a poem a day. I sort of fallen out of my practice. And so I'm going to give two things. One is if you haven't read Jericho Brown's collection, The Tradition, read it it won the Pulitzer Prize. It is absolutely stunning. And it's from, I think it's from early 2019. So it's buy it, keep it, cherish it. It's really, really, it's really stunning. So that's Jericho Brown. And then also the larger, so there's this poet and writer named Tara Skirtu, who I've been working with a little bit. She's been helping me think through some of my writing. And she's wonderful. She's just wonderful. And she founded this thing, I think she was, I think it was her who founded this only, or she found it with a couple of other people called the International Poetry Circle. And there's a Twitter account and there's a hashtag and it's poets from around the world reading, like doing video things. It started because of the pandemic. So they read their own poetry or read other people's poetry. And they just post like a video or two a day of people reading poetry. And it's really stunning, right? And I hope they continue after, after lockdown happens because it's, you know, it's a way to listen to the poetry. It's like the music of the poetry. You can hear it better when you're not the only one reading it, you know? So uh, those are the things that I would, that's what I want to recommend.
0: That's awesome. That's a great drop. Great drops, plural. Yeah. Drops don't have to be just one thing. They could be several things. That's awesome. You know, it's it's been great having you on the show. I love how your mind works. I love having these conversations with you. And it's been a pleasure having you on The Deep Dive.
1: It's been fantastic. Thank you so much.
0: It's been a pleasure having Lena Sivastava join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you you can follow me on twitter via at Far Flung phil to all my listeners wherever you are in the world wherever you are in your life's journey i thank you see you on the other side